This is Science Moab, a show exploring the science happening in Southeast Utah and the Colorado Plateau. I'm Christina Young, and we're talking about wolves in Utah. The historic distribution of wolves includes most, if not all, of Utah. And as their numbers expand, both to the north and south, we talk about what wolves are doing in ecosystems and what it might mean to have wolves back on the western slope and into their historic ranges within Utah. I'm Kirk Robinson. I am the founder and executive director of Western Wildlife Conservancy, a nonprofit wildlife conservation group that was founded in Salt Lake City in the late 90s. I was wondering if you could talk about the historic populations. Were were there wolves everywhere? Were there wolves in, in Moab? You know, can you paint a picture of kind of the distribution of these species? Yes, there were gray wolves in Utah, wherever there was suitable habitat. And that included wolves in the Abajos and the Salles and the Book Cliffs and parts of the Uintas and the Wasatch, probably some in the Grand Staircase Escalante area. There were a couple of famous wolfers in Utah, as a matter of fact. Sears Merrill, who lived in Tropic, was one of the more famous ones, and he claimed to have killed the last wolf in House Rock Valley in northern Arizona, but it had been raiding, allegedly raiding in Utah. And there was another guy whose name escapes me right now, but he he killed another famous wolf in Beef Basin, which is between the Bajos and Canyonlands National Park. I've forgotten the name of that wolf. It was three toes or something like that. It was a big wolf. And of course, these wolves gained legendary status and were claimed to be super wolves. That was just part of the lore. They were hard to catch sometimes, and I think that's partly the reason. But they were not of enormous size. A lot of people really don't understand my pet dog, who is half Pyrenees and half Black Lab, weighs 100 pounds. And that's the average size of the male wolves that were killed in Idaho during the hunt one year. And the females were like 80 to 85 pounds. So they're big animals, but not huge. The biggest ones in Yellowstone, 139 to 141 pounds. And they've been the Molly's pack, which preys on bison. So maybe that helps explain why they're, they're among the biggest. But I think we need to realize that the, these animals are not 200 pounders or anything like that. They are effective predators in pack hunting, but they are not giants and they're not out to eat anything they can find. They have to conserve energy. So this state of Utah, like other states, had bounties and tried to eradicate wolves in the 30s and 40s in Utah, and they succeeded. And to this date, there are no known wolves in Utah, though at any given time, there might be one or two or three. There have been wolves coming through Utah. They just don't stay here. They disperse from the Yellowstone country. They go through the windows and the book cliffs and on into Colorado. They usually end up dead. They don't find mates, so they don't settle down. But that's about to change. And that's the reason I want to talk about wolves today. The landscape for wolves has changed in a significant way. And I think Utah citizens really need to know about it and are probably going to be very interested in learning about it. 
when you're talking about wolves coming into Utah? Are you mostly talking about coming down from Yellowstone or are you talking about coming up from the south? Well, that's a very interesting question. Theoretically, both of those things could happen because wolves, especially males, when they reach about a year of age or maybe two years, sometimes they stay with their natal pack for a while and help help take care of uh, even younger wolves, but they tend to disperse eventually. They go out on their own and they try to find a habitat where they can survive that includes a mate and they form their own wolf families. And wolves have been doing that ever since the reintroduction 25 years ago in Yellowstone. In fact, I know of a number of wolves that have come into Northern Utah and of their fates, which I'm not going to cover. It'll take too much time. I will say, however, that wolves have made it from the Yellowstone country into Northern Colorado within the last year and a half. Uh, there was a pack living in the tri-border area of around Browns Park, the border of Utah, Wyoming, and Colorado. I think that with numbered eight individuals, I believe, and the genetics show they came from the Yellowstone population. But they made the mistake of venturing back into Wyoming, where that part of the state, it's open season on wolves, and six of them were killed. And I don't know about the other two at this point. Meanwhile, however, a breeding pair has established itself in North Park in Colorado and had pups. That's the first known naturally established pack in Colorado since the reintroduction. But just as significant, maybe more significant, Colorado citizens passed Proposition 114 in the fall of 2020. And it maintains that their Colorado Parks and Wildlife reintroduced gray wolves to the west slope of Colorado by the end of 2023. Well, we're nearly halfway through 2022, and they'll probably begin this uh, late later this year, or early next year. And they will probably reintroduce anywhere from about 35 to 55 wolves, gray wolves, the West Slope. It's most likely they'll choose three different reintroduction sites. They'll be mountainous areas, and they will be public lands. The question is, where are they going to get these wolves? And are they going to just reintroduce wolves from Montana or Wyoming? Or are they going to reintroduce Mexican ray wolves, which would make some sense in the southwest part of the state? So things get kind of complicated. I'll talk a little bit more about Mexican wolves later and how that figures into all of this. But for now, in about a year and a half, we can expect three or four dozen, maybe more, gray wolves on the west slope of Colorado. And there's a huge prey base there, a lot of elk. And um, everything says that they will proliferate just like they did in Yellowstone. And in a few years, they will saturate the habitat. So where are the young wolves going to go then? Well, the book cliffs actually extend right into western Colorado. The Los Alzheimer's is right on the border. The Abajos are not very far from uh, the border with Colorado. And also there are the Uinta Mountains and Dinosaur National Monument, which extend into Northwestern Colorado. So we know they will be coming. Part of the issue is how will they be managed? So we have to talk about politics a little bit here so that we know what's going on. 
you touched on a question that I have about what they're eating. Like what are what are these wolves doing in ecosystems? And so can you talk a little bit before we talk about the politics? Sure. Let's talk about giving a bigger understanding of what their roles maybe historically were oh, and what their yeah. roles could be moving forward in these in these areas where we don't have them currently. Sure. Well, they're often referred to as apex predators. They're at the top of the food chain. Uh, nothing else really preys on them, except in rare, unusual circumstances, maybe. So they they play a special role because of that. And they sort of complement the role that mountain lions play, and bears, and coyotes, and to some extent bobcats, because they are all native carnivores. All of them, to some extent, eat baby deer and elk. But the mainstay for wolves in Yellowstone, most of the wolf activity in Yellowstone is in the northern part along the Lamar River and its tributaries. And that valley, the Lamar Valley, actually spills out into southern Montana, into Paradise Valley. And it's bordered by the Absaroka Beartooth Wilderness. So there's a lot of wild land there, and they eat mainly elk. They eat uh, older elk that don't contribute too much to reproduction. They're slower and sometimes kind of sickly. They also tend to eat younger elk. Uh, it's worth mentioning that the carcasses of the animals they prey on are food for other animals as well, including eagles, wolverines, beetles, all kinds of, uh, of different animals, and bears, grizzly bears. Grizzly bear might come along and take a carcass away from the wolves, especially this time of year when they're coming out of hibernation. So it's an important food source for them. That to some extent, they also eat deer. And as I mentioned, the Molly's pack sometimes preys on bison. And that's most easily accomplished in the winter when the snow is deep and they can't, bison can't move very effectively. They will eat other things too if they are available and easy to catch. But um, gophers and mice and things like that really don't have enough calories to make it worthwhile for them to focus, the wolves to focus on them. Elk are the main source of food in Yellowstone for wolves. And the same would probably be true in Colorado. Let's let's talk about the human conflict or the legislation element of bringing wolves back to this area. So can you outline mm -hmm. what that interface looks like? You know, as you said, they will likely be coming into this area. Right. We don't know yet what kind of management regime Colorado will approve or even whether it will allow sport hunting of wolves. But nonetheless, uh, wolves are going to proliferate and some will come to Utah. It's the gray wolves from the north and the ones that are in, reintroduced to Colorado that mostly concern us in Utah, and but also the Mexican gray wolf, because when the first recovery plan was developed for the great Mexican gray wolf, the recommendation of a team of expert scientists was that there be three recovery areas, each with a minimum population, 200 wolves, and an overall population of at least 750 wolves. One of those areas was the Blue Range that I mentioned previously, and that's where they were reintroduced. Another one was the Grand Canyon region. And that's north of I-40. Yet another one was Southwest Colorado, which is also north of I-40. The states of Utah and Colorado got together with 
the uh, wildlife people in New Mexico and Arizona and, and went to war over this. And they decided they didn't want any Mexican wolves straying north of uh, I-40 or coming into Utah or Arizona. They had a big influence on what the federal agency has decided to do. The uh, Fish and Wildlife Service ended up sort of catering to the states and trying to develop a recovery plan that excludes those two additional recovery areas I mentioned. They were hoping for a lot of recovery in Mexico, but that ain't happening. And besides, we have the border wall, which separates the two populations. There's not enough prey in Mexico, and there's too much private land, and there's not enough federal oversight. The population there just isn't going anywhere from everything I hear. But that doesn't mean wolves can't leave where they are in Arizona and New Mexico and on their own just go north. They don't get caught. They could end up in Utah or Colorado, just like the ones did in North Park or in Browns Park. In fact, one of them did. He ventured north of I-40 towards the south rim of the Grand Canyon. And the Wildlife Service Federal Agency decided they had to capture it and take it back. Well, he did it again. And then he was found dead. So it remains to be seen how that will go ultimately. But the federal government is mandated to ensure the recovery of the Mexican gray wolf. And the problem they have is partly the restricted geography they want to confine them to, but also these animals stem from just seven founders. So they're tremendously inbred and the litter sizes tend to be small. The puppies are not very robust as a rule. There's a lot of poaching, illegal killing. Ranchers in the area, many of them don't like them, always trying to have them removed. That's not going to happen, but the problem is, although the Mexican wolf population has grown rather significantly in the last five years or so, I don't think it's going to go anywhere near 750. As I said, it's about 200 right now, and I'd be surprised if it's not close to topping out. So if Colorado decides that they would like some Mexican wolves in the San Juan Mountains, then we will have... a another population of Mexican wolves. And in this connection, I'd like to mention that these populations historically or prehistorically, they weren't utterly separate and distinct. There was crossbreeding everywhere. And the, the science indicates that roughly the Arizona, uh, Utah, and New Mexico, Colorado borders were the radiation zone. So there were wolves, uh, gray wolves and Mexican wolves roaming through those parts. But that was not the, the main part of the Mexican wolf population. But with the climate change, who knows where they will be best suited. And the Endangered Species Act allows the Fish and Wildlife Service to put them into a suitable habitat if they need it in order for recovery to occur, even if it was not historic habitat. So it could happen. You mentioned this before, but you know, I, I would love to hear kind of the the most recent research around asking questions about the natural habitat kind of constraining populations versus the need to hunt wolves to, you know, maintain the desired management population. 
what we expect they come if we allow them to proliferate a bit. And we have a few packs in the book clips. What will that mean? Uh, will it mean that cattle are in danger? Will it mean that deer and elk populations will plummet? If the wolves come in, they'll have to divide up the pie somewhat. There may be a somewhat greater mortality to deer and elk. They will also cause these animals to move around more and be more cautious. So they're not as vulnerable to a predation. That'll make some changes in the natural foliage regime. You know, and it might make it a little more difficult for people to hunt deer and elk. There will be some effects, of course, but I think part of the issue for Utahns is gonna to have to be how many deer and elk belong exclusively to hunters and how many of them belong to the ecosystem, the native population of carnivores and all of the scavengers that they feed, including beetles that songbirds eat, etc. The cascading effect down through the food pyramid is very interesting. They do have a profound impact, although we don't understand it totally. Yeah, I mean, these are really interesting questions, and it's really, it's really fascinating to hear what's what's likely coming. You know, the, what what questions you know people get to weigh and and thinking about how to manage these lands because we, we're getting ourselves to not think that they're you know they're very managed. And so, what what do we want that to look like moving forward? You know, we we kind of touched on all of my questions. Was there anything else you know specifically around kind of the newer information about? wolves coming in or wolf ecology or anything that you wanted to uh, touch on? Just one thing. My organization just hosted a Zoom webinar on the 19th of April in which we had uh, Professor Dan McNulty who teaches at Utah State University and who has studied wolves in Yellowstone since 1995 and is studying the effects of wolves on habitat. He gave the presentation. Anybody who is interested can go to the Western Wildlife Conservancy website. Just type that in, Western Wildlife Conservancy. Scroll down a little bit. There are three light-colored rectangular things. And I've forgotten exactly what they say, but the one on the left, if you click on it, it will have the link to that presentation. There's a lot of interesting stuff in there. You'll learn what the scientists now know about what's going on in Yellowstone, which I think will help inform what's likely to happen in Colorado and Utah as well. So once again, Western Wildlife Conservancy, scroll down a little bit until you see the three rectangular squares kind of ghost colored and click on the one on the left and you should be able to find that particular uh, zoom in heart. Awesome, no, that's great. It's great to know that there's that resource there. Kirk, thank you so much for taking the time and for posing these really interesting questions about thinking about wolves coming back into Utah and what that might mean. I really appreciate you being here. Oh, it was my, my pleasure. To learn more or listen to other Science Moab episodes, visit sciencemoab.org or anywhere you get your podcasts. Science Moab is done in partnership with Utah State University Extension. Our theme music is by Jeremy Spaulding, and the show is produced by Peggy Hodgkins, Christina Young, and KZMU. If you love Science Moab, let us know. Leave a rating on Spotify or a review on iTunes. And consider supporting Science Moab by donating to the podcast at sciencemoab.org. 
This programming is unique to Moab, Utah, and your support makes it possible.